Hello, hello. Welcome to our Jump the Stem podcast. I know we've covered a little bit of orbits in terms of astronomy in the previous episodes, but now we're going to discover another realm with a little bit of sneak peek. It's going to get chaotic. Today's guest is Muhammad Abdullah, who with his project of fine classification of minimal orbits in dynamic systems, last year at Intel ISEF won first and best of category award in mathematics, and was also invited to participate at the Stockholm International Youth Science Seminar, along with the Nobel Prize ceremonies in Stockholm in December, where we actually met, and he has been one of my close friends ever since. So I'm pumped to have this podcast, because I know it's going to be a good one. Hi, Muhammad. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Sure. You know, summer is here, so I suggest let's dive deep in and jump into the STEM pool. So how did you become interested in the world of mathematics? Well, um, I think from a young age, just by the way I was raised, I was always kind of looking at mathematics as a different way of understanding the world. Mathematics is kind of like its own realm where everything is like very systematic, very well put together and uh, very axiomatic. And I think that that kind of uh, logical and systematic thinking is an extremely useful way of understanding the world around us. And I think from a very young age, I was encouraged to look at the world like that. So mathematics and just mathematical thinking in general, beyond numbers and just logical axiomatic thinking has always been a part of my life. Yeah, it's so interesting what you say because I feel like math in general can be, you know, seen as a deal breaker in a student's career. It might be related to the fact that it's not portrayed in a systematic, engaging way that would essentially help them acquire analytical skills, which of course does not translate into the field of mathematics, but has a lot of impact. Oh, I 100% agree. The way I've always viewed it is that um, learning mathematics is very similar to learning a new language. And uh, I think uh, it was Galileo who said that math is the language that God wrote the universe in. Yeah. And I, uh, that's somewhat accurate because in order to really get like an in-depth understanding of mathematics, it's difficult if you haven't been introduced to that during like the time of your life when your brain is forming, when you're very young, the same way that learning a language is much easier when your brain is still like forming and you're very young. And yeah, I 100% agree that um, the math that we're presented in a lot of school systems isn't is really just like a way of looking at numbers instead of a way of looking at the entire world and a way of looking at just the nature of thinking. And I know you want to change on that perspective to introduce kids to math in while they are so malleable and open to receiving new ideas because it can really help them pursue any kind of career in their future endeavors. Oh, absolutely. Like math is, <laughs> mathematical thinking is relevant to pretty much any career that you can imagine. A lot of people think that just because the careers that they're using don't specifically use uh, equations or numbers every day. They're not engaged in mathematical thinking, but pretty much any form of problem solving, in my opinion, is rooted in logic and mathematics. Yes, absolutely. You're dropping the stem. And <laughs> there is a quote that the beauty of mathematics only shows itself to more patient followers, and you've been its follower before Instagram ever existed, I guess. <laughs> Moving a little bit forward in time, 2018, in terms of Intel, was your um, last chance to participate, and man, 
Well, I gotta tell you, just as I shared with the listeners in the intro, you leveled your game up. So I'm interested, what was your winning project on? Or let's put it this way, how did you find order in chaos? Well, um, my project was an investigation of um, the nature of chaotic behavior in general. Um, Well, in my project, I was specifically looking at the system of population dynamics, a really uh, simple and common model that's been used in population dynamics before. And then doing a really simple bifurcation analysis in order to basically see the different kinds of long-term behaviors that can appear in animal population dynamics. And um, it turns out that there is uh, very, very deep forms of order hidden in this realm. And I think that uh, one common misconception about chaos and chaotic behavior in general is that when we say chaos and just like the, uh, the English language, the connotation is some kind of randomness and some kind of disorder. But when we say chaos in a mathematical sense, we actually mean the exact opposite. We mean an extremely deep sense of order. We mean orderness to the point that everything has to follow a very, very exact set of rules and that the adherence to these rules is so strict that even the tiniest change in some parameters can cause a drastic change in the long-term behavior of these systems. And uh, these kinds of uh, drastic changes are, um, are what I was basically looking at. I was looking at the appearances of periodic orbits within animal systems. And an orbit just means that uh, if you imagine you have some uh, recursive function that's being repeated over and over again, and after a certain number of repetitions, you go from a starting point through some process back to that starting point. And that's really important in biological systems because um, the presence of periodic orbits means that there's some kind of repetitive behavior. And nature itself is very repetitive. Uh, The Earth orbits the sun in uh, some kind of fixed pattern. The Earth rotates around its axis in some kind of fixed pattern. And uh, these fixed patterns are very, very deeply implanted to biological systems in general. So understanding the order within these... um, long-term patterns, these long-term repeating patterns, is very, very fundamental to understanding the, just the order of nature itself. Um, I wouldn't really say I found order and chaos, because that's a bit of a stretch, but I will say that I was able to analyze and uh, develop some understanding of a very, very, very specific kind of pattern that can occur in a very, very, very specific kind of biological system. So I think it's a really interesting first step the research I was doing, but um, I don't think it would be very humble of me to say that I have found order in all of chaos. I wanted to drop that commercial line, but still what you made is, um, I think, a huge advancement to science as a whole, and it leads to more and more scientific discoveries. So that's, of course, a milestone, and you were awarded at the world's largest scientific championship for a reason. And as you've said, undoubtedly, mathematics covers the Earth, and the crucial aspect of your project also lays in the fact that many natural phenomena possess chaotic characteristics. And I remember you presented in Stockholm um, at your TED Talk, the presentation, but I didn't listen to your actual main TED Talk, but because we were prepping backstage, but you gave me a winning one at your project board. And one of the terms that really stuck in my head was the butterfly effect. So can you expand on that one? Oh, yeah, the butterfly effect. I think it's a really, really good metaphor that was, um, that's been used to kind of express what uh, chaotic behavior is. It's a bit of a, um, 
I think it's a little sensationalist, but I also think it really gets at the heart of what's going on. It's rooted in a mathematical paper that was published a while ago. I think it was titled, uh, Can the Flap of a Butterfly's Wing in China Cause a Tornado in Texas? And really what it was investigating was the idea that um, in systems that we define as chaotic, systems where the adherence to rules is extremely, extremely strict, tiny changes in initial conditions can cause drastic changes down the line because these tiny changes are perpetuated so many times. And um, that's uh, essentially at the heart of chaos theory. It's the study of how these um, tiny fluctuations from these uh, from initial parameters can basically cause changes in long-term behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also agree with what you said that chaos is all around us and that um, – the majority of systems that surround us are chaotic in, in, uh, in general. Uh, for instance, one of the most common examples of chaotic behavior is uh, just the weather, something that we literally go out and experience every single day of our lives. And um, weather itself is like, it's all governed by physical rules, but there is a limit to how accurate um, the data that we collect on the weather is. And that data is what we use to make predictions of weather over long periods of time. And because of the limited accuracy of this data, there is some change or some error within initial parameters that we plug into our computers that model these systems. And these tiny changes, because they cause such drastic changes over long periods of time, because weather behaves in a very, very strict, chaotic way, um, is the reason that there's uh, our predictions basically get less a- accurate when we predict them over longer periods of time. Yes, I remember that you mentioned that there is a fixed point of lambda, and then afterwards, because of the bifurcation, it fluctuates between two yeah, points. Yeah. And then you found order at some value of lambda, and that you translated into a continuous process. I'm not sure if I, I introduced it right. Well, the, um, what I was looking at, it's a specific kind of uh, bifurcation analysis. Basically, we had some uh, discrete system where you look at um, where basically you're imagining that you have some animal population and you're sampling it over a, a discrete set of time. Mm-hmm. And basically saying um, if we know the population at this point in time, then based on this formula, we can calculate what the population is going to be based on the next period of time. Okay. And uh, it's like a very, very simple system, but from this system, just by varying some uh, parameter within this equation a tiny bit, we can cause crazy changes in long-term behavior, which is why we define this process to be uh, chaotic. And what I was investigating was basically for fixed, um, the parameter that we're varying in this case is a single parameter, uh, I think it was lambda in the equation. And um, basically for a fixed value of lambda, we have some long-term behavior and we can transform this long-term behavior into some continuous endomorphism on the real line, which is getting pretty specific into this uh, abstract field of mathematics that I was looking at. But essentially what we were able to do is we were able to generalize patterns in one very, very specific field of mathematics and then use that to gain insight onto the uh, behavior of this very generalizable. And I think that um, just the fact that This is obviously not something new. This is how all mathematical research in the biological realm has been working for years. But I just think that it's a really, really interesting way of looking at things because it really, really captures like how mathematics is at the heart of all the discoveries we make. 
Like anytime we make a discovery in any field, it's pretty much always rooted in some very, very deep and complicated mathematical discovery we made in some very specific mathematical field decades before. So, yeah. Absolutely. It's the foundation of all sciences. And just as you mentioned all the way from population dynamic to weather predictions, your research um, can be implemented in various systems that basically surround us and um, they are connected to our everyday living. You participated with this project at Intel ISF and you are also a triple ISF alumni. Um, I don't know what kind of ribbon that means, but uh, what did the ISAF experience give you as a whole? Um, well, I, I'm personally a huge fan of the ISAF experience. Uh, I don't think I should get a medal for being a triple ISAF alumni, uh, because one thing that my older sister actually reminds me of a lot is the fact that she was a quadruple ISAF alumni and qualified every year she was in high school. And oh. I actually junior year. So uh, maybe I'm not on the way for a ribbon just yet. Mm. But uh, I think that the ISAF was a really, really enjoyable experience. I think that uh, the most important thing, the, I'm really glad that I was able to go multiple times because when I went my freshman year, I took it extremely, extremely seriously and viewed it as like some kind of professional scientific conference, some kind of very, very competitive thing where I had to like strive to do my best at and win at all costs. Uh, I'm naturally a competitive person, so I tend to do that, especially when I was uh, mm. only 15. But um, I think that when I had the chance to go again, I started taking it a little less seriously. And instead of viewing it as like a hard and fierce competition, I just started to view it as like an opportunity to be surrounded by uh, like-minded individuals who are all doing extremely interesting and extremely successful research within their own fields. And uh, just a, a huge learning experience where you get to... Uh, talk to other people your age who are basically have the same passion that you have, but just in different scientific fields and learn what the, um, basically what the state of many, many different scientific fields is. And also I would say that it was an uh, extremely good networking opportunity, not just uh, from a professional aspect, but from a personal aspect as well. I know uh, I've met a lot of my very, very close friends today at the International Science Fair and uh, they make it really, really easy to meet new people. They have specific events, like they have a pin exchange at the very beginning where you get a chance to meet people from all around the world. And I think that they've done a, a pretty good job overall of making it a very enjoyable experience. So um, the most important thing that I took away from ISAF was definitely just the opportunity to meet new people. I definitely uh, made a lot of important professional connections to some of the judges I had at ISAF. But um, I think that even more importantly was I made a lot of good friends there. So, yeah. Yes. It's not only about competing for the prize and just, you know, being fixated on that, but getting a wider perspective and, yeah, making long-lasting connections because you're such an um, uh, IQ-dense environment as well. <laughs> And you connect with like-minded fellows. And as you mentioned, even if you don't share the same passion, you can connect on so many levels and not just where you present, but on the dance floor as well. Oh, yeah. The mixer party is always fun. It was also the stairways for you to a bright future. But so to speak, ISAF did not only give you, you know, many networking opportunities, which are still alive today, but also an airplane ticket to Europe. So could you share about the Science Week combined with the Nobel festivities you attended? 
That was uh, one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Basically, the um, the Swedish Federation for Young Scientists has an award at the uh, International Science Fair where they, they invite um, three people, I think, to go on this trip to Stockholm in the winter around December. And um, they host this huge program where you meet with, I think, there are 25 people invited total. And you just meet with other people who are young scientists, all under 25 years old, who um, are pretty much at the top of their game. And, uh, oh, man, thinking about it, what an experience. Mm. Um, the, uh, there was some involvement with the Nobel Foundation itself, too, which was really, really cool. For instance, I was actually able to invite, attend the, uh, the Nobel Banquet and um, like eat in this huge fancy hall with the, uh, the royal family, the, uh, the actual Nobel Prize winners. Of course, there were like a thousand people total invited, and I was in a table in the very corner while they were like all in the center. So, but I can still brag and say that I ate with the royal family because technically I'm not wrong. But um, also, they uh, they let us explore the country of Sweden and really, really like introduced us to a lot of Swedish cultural things, which is really, really cool. We went to a, a, a zoo that specialized in showing like um, what I think I don't know what time era it would have been, but maybe like a medieval kind of Swedish town. Yeah. Very, yeah. very traditional Swedish animals. Oh, also, uh, I think you remember this. The um, We all had an opportunity to eat a very traditional Swedish meal. And I think I tried, uh, I tried reindeer for the first time. I tried pickled herring for the first time. <laughs> Poor Rodolf. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was, that was such a great experience. And, um, yeah, I'm, I made a lot of very, very good friends there, which I'm very happy about, uh, host included, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It also, uh, it really, really gave me a chance to understand what the state of science was uh, internationally, because um, one thing about ISEF is that there's it's so huge that uh, you want to talk to as many people as possible. So you get very small perspectives from a whole bunch of different places. But the, um, this program that I was invited to, there were only 25 participants and they're from all across the world too. So over a week of knowing them, you really, really got to know their backgrounds, what it's like, where they're from and stuff. And uh, because you got to know it from a much smaller group of people, you really got to, a deeper and richer international experience, which is one thing that I really, really liked about that event. I, um, I got to understand what the state of like the scientific community was, not just in, um, in the United States, but like all across the world, not just in uh, European countries that, um, for instance, like Sweden, where we were, but also uh, I met participants from so many places. My roommate was actually from Brazil, and I, uh, I remember we had a very, very long discussion about the state of Brazilian politics and how it's affecting science in Brazil one night. So Yeah, shout out to Leandro. Yeah, man, that was a lot of fun. It was such a complex and diverse and deep experience. While talking about the food and reacting to it, it was over to top. I know only three Michelin stars exist, but I would have easily given it a 10. Like that was just once in a lifetime menu we've had there. And 
It was so great collaborating with other scientists. There were also the ethics seminar we participated. Actually, that was so much fun. Basically, what happened was they gave us, um, they actually picked three different topics and they divided us into teams randomly, to six teams randomly. And basically, for each topic, two teams would debate opposite sides of that issue. And it was some ethical issue. You were on my team too. We were debating whether or not it was ethical to use genetic engineering for the conservation of animals. And um, it was very, very interesting because we had a couple days to like research the topic. They gave us a couple of resources to start off with, but really, really encouraged us to like go out and do further research on our own. And then um, when we went to the Nobel Museum, we like, like went into this little. I wouldn't call it an amphitheater because it was just enough to hold like 30 of us. A mini version of it. Yeah. And um, we just like, they gave all of us little time periods to raise our arguments to debate. And at the end, the rest of the hall would kind of vote on who won the debate. And I thought that was really, really fun because basically when you first go there, you already know that everyone there is like, everyone there is really smart because usually you wouldn't get invited to this some this kind of event if you're not like already exceptional and just like critical thinking and scientific thinking but mm-hmm. there everyone really really got a chance to like showcase just how like quick thinking they were and uh everyone was really just like presenting good points and about a lot of things that, like i personally had just never thought about before like um, one of them was whether or not it was ethical to genetically engineer children Obviously, it's like crazy new technology with advent of CRISPR and stuff, and we're nowhere near like I'm actually not sure about this, but I don't think we're near the point where we can like genetically engineer children like they they do in the movie Gattaca to that degree. But we are reaching a point where we do have to come to some ethical decisions about what's going to actually be like allowed, what's actually fair with these kinds of new technologies and a lot of people brought up points that I just like I, I had never even thought about so I really really liked the ethics seminar that was a lot of fun yes you know with modifying your children soccer moms would go wild in this world so yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are definitely points to consider. And I remember when um, prepping for the ethics seminar, we were brainstorming all over the place. And um, you were the one who said, okay, let's have, I don't know, three or four main points and made an attack plan. So those analytical skills really showed up. Wrapping uh, up the whole Nobel Prize experience, like the ceremony was like the Oscars of science, but also the after party. That was a lot of fun too. Oh my god. What's funny is I didn't even know there was an after party to the Nobel Prize ceremony. Like, they kind of just dropped the bomb on us, and they're like, oh yeah, there's this secret party that's like, you're not allowed to bring phones to or record anything at. And basically everyone who's invited to the, um, the Nobel Prize ceremony is also invited to this after party. And that was a lot of fun. I know the, uh, the royal family is invited every year, but it's more of a formality because I think they typically, sometimes they show up, but they typically don't show up. So that was a lot of fun. Um, they really, really dropped the surprise on us with that. Um, and then also the actual ceremony where they officially gifted the, uh, the Nobel Prizes to all the scientists. And I remember it was like in this beautiful hall and um, they had an opera singer there too. And uh, the royal family all came in and everyone had to like stand up for them. 
Uh, that was really, really cool. And then everyone, like, one by one was presented the awards. And, like, every, oh, it was really just, like, I would say it was, like, a, a really great celebration of just science and scientific advancement in general. One thing that I also really liked was um, the fact that at uh, the the actual banquet at the end, uh, all the uh, Nobel Prize winners, well, from each section, one Nobel Prize winner was selected as a speaker, and uh, they were supposed to give some kind of, I would say, lighthearted speech about um, their research in general, and I thought that was really interesting because um, when we attended the uh, the lectures, they're speaking in like the most in-depth scientific language possible like on some of the most important research going on in the world but then at the banquet they're uh they're much more relaxed and you see them less as like these genius researchers and just more as these individuals and i think another uh really really fun thing was when we went to that uh swedish history museum and we had this uh really really large hall full of people and had the chance to actually walk around and with the uh, the Nobel Prize winners and talk to them about their research firsthand, it really really humanized what um, basically all, in my opinion, pretty much everyone as a kid kind of views winning the Nobel Prize as this like abstract thing that like these crazy geniuses in their fields do, and we don't really separate them as humans from their research, and that really really gave us a chance to like humanize scientific advancement in general, and like when you talk to these people firsthand about why they're doing the research that they do and why it's so important to them, that that's just a really, really great experience that I wish wasn't just limited to 25 of us this year. I wish everyone could have gotten to experience that. Yes, it was such an amazing opportunity to meet with them and actually have a face-to-face -face conversation. I think that's one of the greatest presents of that week too. Just as you mentioned, we were at the Historical Museum. I got to meet Dr. Hanju and I just learned a few uh, Japanese expressions saying I was really captured by was his humility. And he mentioned that either leads by showing an example, not by demanding or something along those lines. And he was really insightful and just a very kind person. Oh, I totally agree. Um, meeting him was definitely one of the highlights of the trip. Uh, meeting Dr. Allison the, um, was also who uh, won a joint Nobel Prize with him, too, in the, um, for their contributions to the study of cancer immunotherapy was really really cool too i um i honestly think it's just such a cool opportunity because like when you're in a room and you're literally there with like the people that the scientific community has basically chosen to be the representatives as like the the most uh important scientists in terms of contribution to their respective fields that year like obviously you're gonna come out of that room with some really really great insights and some really really great advice so i'm i'm really happy about that experience we've been at the inner circles of those scientific stars uh, so to speak it, it was such a great memory and and an experience as a whole scientifically and all together and we were also put together because of the whole glam squad and what's been set up for us oh my god but yeah, going uh, going to rent our tailcoats and stuff the, uh, before the Nobel banquet and everything, and getting fitted so we all look nice, going for that photo shoot, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I think that, 
the fanciest I've ever dressed up, and realistically, the fanciest I've ever gonna dress up. <laughs> yeah, I remember too. It was so muddy, and I didn't get the message that I should actually bring my boots. So I was in my high heels, these really high heels, and I almost tripped and fell. But you know, you had to make it for the shot. <laughs> There's a segment coming up. It's called Getting to Know the Person Beyond the Project Board. So, where is your scientific pursuit heading at the moment? Um, well, I'm still really, really interested in the study and the, um, the app. Basically, the research I've always been interested in is trying to get a deep understanding about the nature of mathematics. And, like, I guess it's, I wouldn't say it's pure mathematics even though it is an understanding of the nature of mathematics, because I think that the ultimate goal of understanding the nature of mathematics is being able to find a way to apply this understanding to solve very, very pressing real-world problems. So um, the research that I'm currently working in, I'm a research intern at the University of Pittsburgh over the summer, and um, we're actually also we're working in the field of dynamical systems, but uh, this is a little more in-depth than the research I was doing before. And we're trying to write a, a model that views um, the, the neurons in the brain, specifically the ones in the uh, pre-Botzinger complex, which uh, help kind of create a respiratory rhythm for our body by uh, the patterns through which they burst. And um, we're trying to model those as dynamical systems. And this kind of field has been modeling neurons as dynamical systems has been studied for a really, really long time. I think that the most important research in this field to mention is the, uh, the development of the Hodgkin-Huxley model. And basically what uh, these two researchers did was um, they were able to take a giant squid axon and because it's like, it's... Um, it's a meters it's, long, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's like, it's one of the few neurons that like, we can physically like hold because of how huge it is and because that's such a huge neuron they had access to they were able to model at um how the input of electrical signals would cause that neuron to behave and then based on these inputs they were able to develop a pretty complex uh, multi-parameter model uh, that viewed this neuron as a dynamical system. And ever since they were able to do that, basically many, many scientists have been basing their own models of uh, usually human neurons uh, as these dynamical systems. And uh, every single neuron behaves uh, slightly different when it's in a different part of the brain or used for a different purpose. The same ideas from the Hodgkin-Huxley model where you, uh, the, basically, you have a system of differential equations. And the fundamental differential equation is based on the law of capacitance, where you have some fixed capacitance of the neuron membrane. And um, you basically said the product of this fixed capacitance and the derivative of the uh, potential difference with respect to time is equal to the sum of all the currents passing through the membrane. And then each uh, membrane current, which is basically just a flow of positive ions through the membrane of the neuron, is uh, driven by uh, multiple parameters, which uh, basically describe whether or not voltage-gated uh, channels are going to be open or closed for these ions to flow into this membrane faster, and the, um, the conductance of this membrane, and how much it's willing to let these uh, ions flow through normally, and some ohmic drive, some um, 
reversal fixed potential, which is based on uh, the Nernst potential and the ratio of ions inside and outside of this membrane, and the potential difference between that and the instantaneous potential difference, and the instantaneous potential uh, across this membrane. So basically, you have every single current defined this way, and then each uh, parameter that governs the opening and closing of these gates, which allows these ions to flow either faster or slower, is also some uh, differential equation governed um, with uh, respect to uh, voltage and a time variable. And it's, it's just such an interesting field. Basically, ever since Hodgkin and Huxley were able to develop a model like this, we've developed multiple iterations of this model that start incorporating more and more behaviors of the neuron. And uh, the research that I'm specifically working on this year is we're trying to develop a model that shows how a bursting behavior can be triggered in these neurons based on having uh, not only a slowly activating, uh, a slowly inactivating sodium current of ions, but also a dynamic concentration of uh, potassium ions outside of the cell. Because um, this is actually a common thing whenever you're viewing any kind of electrical signals in the body. Because, for instance, when people do heart surgery, you can't do heart surgery when the heart is like still beating. So to get the heart to stop beating, to stop depolarizing, what you do is you put it in some kind of uh, solution that has a very high concentration of potassium ions because increasing the external uh, concentration of potassium affects the reversal potential, which basically makes the heart reach a depolarization block so it's unable to fire. And basically what uh, previous researchers were able to find is that when you do this with neurons, when you have small changes in external concentrations of um potassium ions, you actually get very, very different behavior in the neuron. For instance, at lower concentrations, you can get tonic spiking, where basically the neuron is just uh, firing again and again at some very, very high frequency, but at a fixed rate. But when you increase this uh, external concentration of potassium, what ends up happening is the neuron starts uh, doing something called bursting, where it'll fire at a really, really, really rapid rate. And then all of a sudden it'll stop and it'll uh, remain uh, quiescent for a little bit. And then it'll start firing again really, really rapidly. So you have this uh, little clumps of uh, a whole bunch of spiking and then periods of where it's inactive. And um, basically the things in the body that can change the external concentration of potassium is when the neuron gets a signal from some other neuron to suddenly fire, um, the... Uh, Sodium ions will suddenly flow into the uh, neuron body, into the uh, soma of the cell, and potassium ions will suddenly flow out. And if we can write uh, these equations that describe the flow of these ion currents, not only are we able to um, model how basically uh, ion concentrations will change inside and outside of the cell, but because we have a very, very accurate and um, going back to the idea of periodic orbits, it's the repetitive behavior of the dynamics of ion concentrations. We're basically able to uh, gain insights onto why these periodic behaviors like bursting or tonic spiking even happen. So it's a really, really, and I went off on kind of a tangent there, but it's a really, really, really interesting field. And uh, I've been working here since um, the very beginning of June. So I've been working here for just over a month now. And um, the things I've learned so far are just uh, incredible. Also, while I'm in Pittsburgh, I had the opportunity to attend the um, 
the UPNC, which is the undergraduate program in uh, neuroscience computation, I think. And basically, uh, at Carnegie Mellon University, which is just across the street from uh, University of Pittsburgh's mm-hmm. campus, they, uh, they have a kind of boot camp where they have these top professors in uh, computational science and neuroscience come in and teach you like all the newest and most modern techniques in uh, using computer science and mathematics to analyze uh, the brain and how it behaves. And um, that was a really, really cool experience for me too because I, I was able to learn how we use mathematics to understand the, the biology of the brain in ways that like <laughs> ways I would never ever have even thought of before. And um, yeah, that's that's what it, my most recent has been it. Yeah, it sounds so interesting. You definitely have a passion for that. Going back to the research, those membranes do not go with the flow and uh, it might be complex to analyze their behavior, but the knowledge you uh, absorb like a sponge in your previous research or just really gave you the fundamentals, the sapping stones to move into this particular field of applied sciences. Absolutely agree. And I think that's an even bigger testament to the fact that mathematics is so universal. The fact that I was doing research in a completely different field and in basically two weeks I was able to completely adapt to a new field of research just because I had a previous understanding of some common mathematics that was used in both fields. These experiences gave you wings to fly and you flew all the way up north and now you are tackling a new set of problems. Yeah, can't wait to hear more about the results when you when you finish this journey. Talk about the results when I finish this journey. <laughs> See you at your next TED talk. Math is of course, not a deductive science. What you do is trial and error, experimentation, guesswork, get questioning until you get to the reasoning part to back up your hypothesis. So did you face challenges during conducting research and how did you overcome those obstacles? Um, I think that everyone faces challenges when they're conducting research and I, I definitely face challenges myself. Um, I think that one of the main obstacles in mathematical research is the fact that the way like it was always described to me is that when you're trying to prove something in mathematics, it should be viewed as like some work of art, like some kind of sculpture. And you have these little tools that you've learned along the way, uh, which are just like some mathematical principles, some mathematical reasoning, and you have this huge block that you're given which is uh, just all the knowledge that you have about this topic that you're trying to research. And with, um, with these tools that you've been given, that you've basically been trained to use ever since you started studying mathematics from when you first entered school, you basically just like start chipping away at this block of knowledge to create the result that you want, this new truth that you want to find in a very, very systematic way. And I think that uh, this problem is common in basically every research is that uh, every field of research is that we're getting to a point where we know so much that we don't really know what knowledge to use in what situations to reach what point so knowing which tools to use when to do what is basically the biggest challenge i think of all researchers and um the same way that like 
when an artist becomes really, really good, going back to the sculpting metaphor, I guess, when an artist becomes really, really good, he'll know exactly what tool to use to create some effect on his sculpture. When, um, as you get better at doing research, you know exactly what, um, maybe not tools, but like what mathematical principles to apply, what mathematical arguments, whether or not you want to like approach some kind of proof through a contradiction or through inductive reasoning or something like that. You, you just get, uh, you get better at it as you go along. So definitely the most difficult thing for me was the knowledge that, um, in the back of my head the whole time that the better I get at it, like the more I do it, the better I'll get at it. So it'll become easier. But at the current moment, understanding something might be a little bit like out of my grasp. So like, even though I can't get to it now, I can't really stop working towards it because the only way I'll ever get the knowledge to understand something is if I keep working at it, despite the fact I'm not getting the full understanding of it right now. So I think that there's a mental roadblock for all researchers that you hit when you realize that you just can't understand something at the moment. And the hardest thing about research is definitely finding the uh, perseverance and the commitment to stick with something, even though you can't really understand it at the moment with the knowledge in the back of your head that the only way to gain that understanding is to stick with it despite not being able to fully understand it. Because the full understanding is something that it just takes time, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really like the sculpting metaphor and the fact that creativity is needed to, I guess, think outside of the toolbox. And I remember when we were talking, I just faced um, some kind of obstacle in my research and we were just talking about hitting those roadblocks and you suggested to take uh, a few steps back to, to get a clearer picture of the whole view. Being perseverant because um, just as you said, we cannot know everything at the moment. So I think the goal is not perfection, but instead wholeness. To, to gaining a deeper understanding. I, yeah, I 100% agree. I, um, I think that in scientific research, something that gets looked over a lot of the time, especially when we're talking about scientific research at like, um, this really isn't that big of a problem, I think at like the professional level because they've been doing it for so many years and now it works. But when we're trying to encourage like the, uh, the younger generation to get into this uh, whole research thing, one thing that we really skip over is the idea of creativity in research. Uh, we kind of just expect, um, we kind of just like have a very set way of performing experiments and then we'll apply the same set experimental method to every problem we can think of and people aren't really encouraged to think of new ways to approach problems and understand why a different experimental method might be better suited for different kinds of problems that we approach. And I think that the most important um, thing in any kind of research is the creativity. Because if, if you look at any large problem in the last, like, hundreds of years, like, even if we can understand it now and view, we view the solution to that problem as some kind of fact, when it was discovered, no one had ever looked at that problem with the right mindset to reach that solution. So, like... A, 
extraordinary amount of creativity was needed to reach even like the simplest things that we take for granted today. And I think that one way to better encourage people to embrace creativity as part of their research is um, rather than looking at all the things that there are around them in their, their respective scientific fields as like given facts that are known, is to really delve deep into like the history and the literature in the field to get a better understanding of how these great discoveries were reached and what creativity, what kind of uh, thinking was needed to reach these uh, kinds of facts that we just take for granted today. You cannot um, observe the specific field you're working on from a one-sided perspective because just as like neurons are connected to each other and they form this intricately complex system, there are so many points in your research that could be connected to other fields uh, that would essentially help you to better understand that problem and just um, give you a new insight to where your next th step leads you to. Absolutely. The next question sounds a bit vague, but I'm the type and I guess you can relate to enjoys discussing future possibilities and envisioning a nicer tomorrow. So what's your ultimate dream in life? Oh, that's a hard question. My ultimate dream in life? Um, I think it's always been hard to view my life as like one one thing because like I have I have different goals in different aspects of my life like uh, goals in my personal life might be different than, well obviously they're different than goals in, like my professional life yeah. you know so um, I think that in order to really really be happy in the future which is basically what everyone strives to be you have to have um, you have to try to reach some kind of goals in all aspects of your life and you can't really really focus on one um, if I'm talking about my professional life, uh, one ultimate dream of mine is definitely to discover something that helps people because it's um, like in any kind of research, if you're, if you're really, really good and you're really, really successful, you'll end up discovering something, which is like one of the greatest feelings ever. But just, I feel like uh, after a while, like people will get... Like, it still feels great to discover something, but you want to know that what you're discovering is, like, useful, that it's actually beneficial to humanity as a whole. So that's definitely my goal within my professional life is to be able to discover something that's really useful to humanity as a whole and really helpful to people as a whole. If I'm talking about goals in my, like, my personal life, um, my biggest dream is definitely to travel around the world and to get a really deep and rich understanding of pretty much anywhere I can travel to. Uh, I would say that my ultimate dream is to visit every country in the world at least once. And um, more, more than just visit, like more than just like do a quick tourist tour, like maybe actually like get a chance to like talk to people who live in that country and get an understanding of, of the essence of every country in the world, at least once for each country. Yeah, becoming the modern Marco Polo. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's really important what you're saying because one of the greatest benefits of science is that it has an impact on society as a whole. You know, we can feel like we don't have it all figured out at the moment, but the vital thing is that you identify your interests, you know what motivates you, um, that you want to have or create an impact on humanity as a whole, and then you extrapolate from those points to, to form a clearer picture with every move you make. And absolutely, I think... 
traveling is also a form of discovery and experimentation and just finding your perspective just as you do with science, but of course, in another way. Oh, I actually hadn't even thought about it that way, but that's a really, really good point. I guess uh, research research isn't just limited to scientific fields. Like research is all around us. Like the development of the human mind from the moment you're born to the moment you die is, in essence, just like research. Just uh, trying to understand the world around us and how it works and how we can affect the world around us and how the world around us affects us. So I, I never really thought about that, but maybe like my professional life. And uh, my personal life aren't that separated at all because, like, at the heart of both of those goals, there's just the idea of, like, researching and getting a better understanding of everything around me. Yeah, and who knows, you will have published papers on the countries you visited. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the future, we are literally gonna get personal because I'm curious, if you had the choice to meet anyone from any era, who would that person be and why? That's a good question. I could meet anyone. Okay, to be fair, I feel like my answer would change depending on when you ask me this. And my answer might be more biased now because we've been having a scientific discussion for the last hour. All But right. if you ask me right now if I could meet anyone, it would de probably be um, a mathematician by the name of Leonard Euler. And he's one of the most famous mathematicians of all time. And there's actually a joke in the mathematical community that he discovered so many things in so many different fields that a lot of um, concepts aren't named after the first person who discovered it. They're named after the first person who discovered it after Euler. <laughs> so many things. I've always thought that was really funny. But just the fact that his understanding of mathematics was so versatile that he could literally think about any problem in any field and reach some kind of groundbreaking discovery in anything through his way of thinking. I've always thought that's just crazy. And if I could just talk to him and maybe get a better idea of how he did it, that would be, I think that's not just a useful skill for my professional career. That's like, that's useful in everything for everyone. I think if we had some deeper insights of how Leonard Euler thought that everyone could use, that would be a win for humanity overall. Yeah, it would be like meeting up with a living dictionary. Like <laughs> those memes, you know, when there is a very thick book and a very thin one. How is that? Mathematics with Euler and then mathematics without Euler. So just to get a comparison. <laughs> Honestly. And I know that you have a lot of thong songs on your Spotify list. So I'm interested how you're going to choose a fixed value from that data set. Okay. If you had a theme song, what would that be? Ooh, okay, a theme song. Um, that's a really hard question, actually. Okay, so there was this, I don't know what style of music it is. This would be like a mix of pop and reggae. But there was this song that came out when I was a little kid, kid called uh, Say Hey. And I think it was by Michael Franti. And, I don't know, the song is like, it's just about, like, it's just, it's just like a really cheesy and happy song about, like, smiling and love and traveling. And it's just like, it incorporates a bunch of things that I personally find make me really happy. So whenever I hear the song, I get really happy in any situation. So I feel like any song that can spontaneously make me happy is a good pick for a theme song. So I'll go with that.
Yeah, those excite your neuron transmitters. <laughs> <laughs> we are gonna go and do the this or that game section, so you're gonna choose either or. The first one is food related. Pancakes or waffles? Um, oh my god, okay, this actually, <laughs> sidetrack. I remember in uh, my senior year of high school in my biology class, we got into this huge argument about which was better, pancakes or waffles. And we had like a split classroom and a huge debate over which was better. Instead of actually learning biology, we just argued about pancakes and waffles for a day. <laughs> I remember at the time, my answer was a pancakes. But I think that as I went to college, I grew and matured a little bit. And now I can safely say that my answer is waffles. Okay, so you have a more defined answer just by looking at the shape, right? <laughs> yep. I like the increase in surface area. <laughs> yeah, definitely you have to back up with mathematical reasoning. But the maple syrup, you cannot miss that, right? Yeah, of course. You want to maximize how much maple syrup you have per unit volume of what you're eating. So you need to maximize the surface area. So the same way that like the cells within our body are like folded over each other to maximize the surface area to volume ratio, the waffle has like little ridges to hold the syrup. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and creates more space. Yeah, more dense environments. Country or Latin? Okay, this is a hard question. I feel like because I grew up in Florida, um, my answer is very, very evenly split between those two because like half of the state has a very Latin influence and half of the state has a very country influence. But I think if I'm going out for like dancing and stuff, then Latin music is definitely more exciting. Okay, yeah, it has good vibes, undoubtedly. Like country and roll tide, that, that that's what they use, right? <laughs> that's for Alabama. I think it's becoming pretty synonymous with uh, the southern, southeastern United States in general. I feel like if I'm listening on like a daily basis, I'm, there's probably more likely that I'll end up listening to country music just because I first, like I don't speak Spanish, so I, there's a language barrier between me and enjoying Latin music. But if I don't have to understand the music and I'm just like trying to dance to a rhythm, then Latin music is definitely the way to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Spanish songs are usually very heated, just like jalapenos, so. <laughs> what I love that, like, when walking down the streets in Florida, you can hear just people randomly speaking Spanish, which I really enjoyed, so that's absolutely a perk of, of living there. Oh, yeah, uh, it's really, really cool. I think that um, one thing about the... Um, southeastern United States in general that I'm not a fan of is that there's certain areas that lack diversity. I feel like that's the most polite way I can say that. But I feel like Florida, as far as states go in the area, is extremely diverse, especially if you go into uh, like the southern parts of Florida around Miami. The culture is very, very, very visibly influenced by external cultures mm. and like, there's parts of Miami where basically you can get along better speaking Spanish than you would speaking English. And I think that's something that's really, really cool. You have this very diverse intersection of cultures. And the next one, um, late night or early morning? Oh, I'm definitely a late night person. All the others, I have like a... I'm kind of, kind of, I can kind of go both ways, but <laughs> this one is a 
very easy for me. I'm definitely a late night person. I can't wake up early in the mornings to save my life. Yeah, early morning is only determined by external factors that force you to do that. Yeah, I um, I remember when we uh, when we first got to um, to Sweden. I was like really, really jet lagged because of the flight, and like my brain was completely confused. And I remember the first night, I ended up only getting like three or four hours of sleep, and that was that. That's I felt about as bad as I did like waking up in the early morning at any point in the time, despite the jet lag. Like, ooh, that's tough. You you had yeah. to get your beautiful sleep in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wish I could have taken more naps, but then I wouldn't have gotten to experience everything, so maybe I don't. But For I sure. Know. I mean, one week without sleep, if you get to participate in Nobel, I mean, I would say yes. Yeah, that's, you're right, that's definitely worth it. The next one is alligators or eagles. Ooh. I'm giving you the hard ones. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, okay, I, I go to the University of Florida, so I think I'm required to say gators. I'll take the gators. Yeah, go get them, gators. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I had a choice in that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a representative of your school, so you had to give the politician answer. <laughs> yeah, I had to do the chalk. The last one is Komodo dragon or gorilla. Okay, that's a good question. <laughs> that's one I definitely didn't see coming. Um, I, I would say gorilla. Gorillas are just so cute. Like... They're enormous. They're so much bigger than people. They're definitely one of the strongest animals like on Earth. But they're also like a hundred percent vegetarian and pretty friendly. So I would I would go with gorillas. I think they're just too cute. Yeah, they they support the green movement. <laughs> Last one is a bit of a well, universal question, but the answers I've received in the podcast have been so diverse and unique, and that's why I obviously, I'm asking you the same. What does science mean to you personally? I think that's a really good question. Um, I actually, I think it's uh, really, really great that you ask this to everyone who comes on to the podcast, because everyone really has a different personal view of what science means to them. To me... Science is a form of freedom because, uh, like, science shouldn't just be like a field of like facts. Science is a way of approaching life, it's a way of understanding, it's a way of thinking. And um, basically, I think that you don't really need to study any specific scientific field in order to understand scientific thinking. But if you're able to understand, like, how a scientist thinks, how you can systematically approach problems in the world and try to get to solutions, you have a degree of freedom that people who can't understand that really don't. And I think that you have, like, freedom in um, how you approach things and what you do and how you even, like, think about things. And just the, the understanding of science in general is just such a huge advantage in everyday life. So, yeah, I think that, to me, I would most closely equate scientific thought with the idea of freedom and how we want to approach life. Hmm. That was a very good closing line. And I guess science is a way of living. Gorilla defines the way you view the world. 
and it can translate into so many different and diverse fields. So that was a really good sentence and what, how you wrapped up the whole thing and dropped the stem. So thank you for coming. Congratulations on your achievements. Yeah, can't wait to hear about your next endeavors. I really, really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Um, if you ever run out of young scientists to interview and you want to have me again, I'd be more than happy to come. Sure, sure. We've agreed. You can find us on Instagram at DropTheStampPodcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and make sure to stay tuned for the next one.